Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I have Marwan and Dan here today to talk about their their business, Viridian Ventures. I'm going to try and make sure this is accessible to everyone as it can be because these guys are very smart, very gifted uh, investors and they work in a world where there's a lot of words and acronyms that we may, uh, us, us other people who don't work in that world may not be using on a day-to-day basis. So I'm going to try and make sure I ask questions to clarify what the words mean and pretend like my MBA knowledge is uh, it has been forgotten <clears throat> because obviously I didn't forget any of the finance that I learned at the MBA and I remember everything very clearly. So the questions I ask will purely be for you, the audience, uh, not for myself. I will know everything uh, and there's definitely no sarcasm in, in that sentence at all. So <laughs> first things first, I am going to pass over to Dan and Marwan to introduce themselves. I, we haven't actually agreed who's going to go first, so you guys can battle that out. But uh, uh, Marwan, Dan, if you can take a moment to just give us a little bit about your backgrounds, kind of where you came from to get to where you are now. Uh, obviously, INSEAD is the business school where we met and is the business school where I, I did my MBA. You guys did your MBA uh, back in way back in 2006. So I know that that was a, a major point for you guys. And, and But may, maybe if you can give us the th- flow through that into where you are now and setting up a business together. Sure. Um, why don't I start? Um, so... My career before INSEAD was, uh, I was basically a computer engineer and uh, specialized in system integrations. And uh, what I did was letting different systems work uh, with each other and be able to talk to each other. And uh, when I went to INSEAD, I actually didn't have a clear idea of what I wanted to do. I I knew I wanted to change something, uh, but I thought I will treat it as a learning experience. And I tried to learn as much as possible by diversifying the type of uh, courses that I took. Now, in retrospect, I'm not sure that if that was a good strategy, but uh, it worked for me and I really enjoyed the experience. Uh, And since INSEAD, I've been mostly working either in financial services or consulting for financial services. And my sweet spot is um, the intersection of technology and the business. And that's where I feel that I'm the most effective. Uh, so building on my one's framework, which I think is a good framework, um, married, three kids. We didn't get into that. Um, started yes. out as a, we, as a lawyer. I'll interrupt you. We may have kids interrupting us at any point during this because all three of us have children. Dan has the most. He has three. Marwan Maren and I have two, and it's we're recording on a Saturday uh, afternoon. So uh, let's see how we we how that pans out. But yes, uh, Dan, sorry for interrupting. <laughs> so I did warn them, but they don't always listen, as I'm sure everyone knows. Uh, so started out as a lawyer, uh, specifically a criminal prosecutor of all things doing litigation work for a few years, um, then sort of took a hard right into management consulting, uh, joined McKinsey and Company, then switched over to EY. And after a few years of doing that and sort of progressing up the ranks, I uh, got to a point where I felt uh, somewhat uncomfortable uh, doing sort of um, heavy duty um, consulting engagements with a legal degree. So I figured, you know, my, one one ought to get a business degree at, at some point. Uh, so I, I went and uh, did my MBA in Seattle where I met you guys. And um, um, I think unlike my one, I had a fairly clear focus coming from consulting and intending to go back to consulting. I focused most of my cho- uh, course selection on strategy and finance, uh, unsurprisingly. 
Um, and uh, then I did go back into uh, consulting, actually in-house at UBS, but still same thing, just a different place. Then a few years later, switched over into private equity, uh, ran a private equity fund that did impact investing in sub-Saharan Africa for six years. Um, as part of that, also moved around quite a bit and at some point got to London with uh, with my family, which is where I'm based right now, as is my one. And uh, then I left that and basically became a, uh, what I guess you could best describe as an independent consultant doing mostly finance and strategy work on, on a project or ad hoc basis. And in parallel about, was it four or five years ago that we had set up Viridian Ventures and uh, we've been doing that in parallel well, to I our, think we uh, should uh, discuss that separately because I think there's an interesting history of how it started because it, it yes. uh, we didn't just have an idea out of the blue that we want to start investing. I think it all came together naturally. Okay. Sorry, Dan, so, I, I well, didn't mean to interrupt, but uh, go ahead. No, that's, no, no, but that's a good segue. That's a good, that's a good Good segue. But I just want to back up because I really want to ask the stupid questions here. Now, management consulting, I, I think, is is f hopefully fairly self-explanatory to people. Management consultants, um, uh, my dad used to have a great joke about management consultants, but I won't say it because it's inappropriate. But uh, but but they basically uh, get, get um, uh, tasked to go into businesses and solve some challenges that the business are having or establish some of the better ways in which business could be run. And, and they, they take it from all sorts of different angles but a lot of it is related to the finance and the strategy that the businesses are doing so mba uh, masters of business administration uh, people uh, tend to have a pretty good profile for management consulting so uh, actually a lot of mba schools recruit a lot of uh, consultants into them but also send out a lot of consultants into big companies like the names you've just heard from uh, from uh, these guys and so that's management consulting. Hopefully that's a fair assessment of that, a fair explanation. But I wanted you to explain private equity because a private equity you mentioned coming through. And I think that for me, there's always there's often some confusion between private equity, investment, angel investors, venture capitalists and those sort of things. So if you can explain pr private equity to me uh, just very quickly, that would be that would be useful, I think. Sure. Uh, in a nutshell, private equity uh, is effectively uh, investment structures which are often structured as, as funds where um, individual investors, usually quite wealthy individual investors, and sometimes not individuals, but rather uh, companies or organizations invest money into a pool that is managed by a fund manager. And that fund manager has a strategy, an investment strategy. It could be around specific sectors, geographies, and so on, the type of assets. And um, that fund manager has uh, discretion within the bounds of that strategy to decide what to invest in. So in, in individual investors, they're called LPs or limited partners, don't make active decisions on what to invest in. It's discretionary. They basically hand over the money to a certain entity to invest it on their behalf, subject to a certain strategy that is predefined and uh, and you know typically those things run for a few years and then they, uh, they get liquidated and the money gets returned to investors hopefully with some significant profit and typically the investments are in equity as in in shares of businesses and so on as opposed to lending or providing loans okay that's great and that's a great clarification there at the end i think because one thing we're going to talk about a lot 
I presume, <laughs> is is money and investing and what people expect out of investments. And that's something which I think for for uh, an everyday person who hasn't maybe got a stock portfolio or any any kind of investment experience, they may just think it's only about money. But as you mentioned, sub-Saharan Africa, private equity, that was your focus for your private equity firm. But there's a lot of different ways in which people are actually trying to invest their money in a positive way, have positive impact. There's loads of different ways in which actually investors aren't just expecting massive amounts of money to roll into their bank account. They're also looking to try and do things that have a positive impact. So let's take from there then into Viridian Ventures. The idea, where was the where, where was this idea born, and and how did it you know how did it germinate? Let me start with that. Um, so I think maybe we should go back to the time when we started off as independent angels, um, and I can tell you my journey. Um, there is an event that is run by the alumni association of our school, which is an angels event for um, NCIders. And I was always intrigued by that, but I never went. And then I found out one day that a friend of mine was going and he said, why don't you come with me? And I was like, hmm, not sure I know much about this. And he said, well, it's a great learning experience. So I went and I saw the pitches of a number of startups and I fell in love with it, fell in love with it straight away. It was such an exciting place. Lots of people trying to do brilliant things, starting from scratch, sometimes from uh, uh, from uh, such an early stage that I just found it very, uh, very exciting. And I started attending more and more of these events. I started attending ones that are not uh, organized by INSEAD. And at one point, I decided that I wanted to invest in a company. And very soon I found out that I wasn't able to because their minimum ticket size was 50,000 pounds. And I wasn't willing to put that much money into my very first venture. I was still trying to find my feet. And that's where I first realized that actually, you know what, if a couple of angels can buddy up, we can together uh, put amounts in that are required by uh, as minimum tickets by some startups and it makes more sense for us. And it started as, uh, uh, that's where the idea started. And I started uh, talking to different angels, but for a while, nothing came out of it because with the way these things work, you have to find the proper opportunity that you can discuss before things can become a little bit more real. And that's exactly how it happened. So at one of the events, I, uh, I liked a company and I started looking into it. And I noticed that one of our Viridian co-founders, John, uh, was also looking into it. John is also in SEAD, but he's not from our class. He's from a previous class. And I looked him up on the NCAD directory and found his contact details. And I called him up and I said, John, look, I know you're looking into this company. Why don't we compare notes? Maybe there was something that you didn't see that I did or vice versa. And we did that and I found it very, very useful and he found it useful as well. We ended up not investing in that particular company, but uh, we sort of validated that a couple of angels collaborating together uh, can create more than, in, uh, more of a, what, what's the right word, more than the whole of each individual working uh, independently. So we decided that it's useful and let's continue doing this whenever possible. 
And then when Dan moved to the UK, I remember we were having lunch at my place and he was asking me, well, what are you doing these days? And I said, well, you know, I'm working for Goldman Sachs, but the really interesting stuff is the stuff that I'm doing outside of work and I'm doing in angel investing. Uh, and Dan had uh, some investments he's been doing, he had uh, done on his own, and we agreed that we should also collaborate. And we ended up three angels collaborating, then another three joined us. But we soon realized that th angels loosely collaborating wasn't a very uh, sustainable way of working. We were getting on these long calls to discuss one or two companies. Uh, it took a long time, but we also realized that there was different levels of contribution from each of the members. And that's when Dan came up with the brilliant idea of, well, if we professionalize it and put in some processes in there, then maybe we can help uh, help it grow. And that was important because we were getting other angels who were seeing what we were doing, they liked it, but we were a little bit hesitant on getting them uh, on board the group because we were at capacity. So when we decided to professionalize it, the three of us, we got together, we had several conversations around how we should work. Uh, we explored how other angel syndicates works, how, work, how funds work, and we put the plan together. Now, what that resulted in was uh, we basically all invested some, uh, some funds in to create the uh, partnership. We uh, got a law firm to write up our legal documentation. We got a dev uh, firm to build our website. And we decided early on that we want to run this really properly. So we decided we wanted to get uh, FCA authorized. Uh, FCA is the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK. And we are one of the few syndicates that are directly authorized by the FCA rather than uh, getting an external agency to basically be appoint us as an agent. And that was, I think we finished all the setup in early 2018 and that's when we started uh, working as Viridian as an entity rather than individuals and we started growing our uh, syndicate and where we are today is we're roughly about 50 angels uh, investing together and we tend to grow by one or two every couple of months. So I think that is a brief history of how Viridian started. Uh, Dan, did I? miss anything no not at all i think uh, it's a, a very good um, summary and, and um, a very accurate narrative uh, today one thing that i would add to that is that the challenge that we had at the beginning which is to find a way where this could be made to scale was one that still continues with, with us to, to this day in the sense that you know the model we've chosen the the, 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 the angel syndicate model is a good scalable model to operate a, a group of uh, angel investors but it's not ideal as in terms of really scaling up towards larger ticket investments and so at some point i think fairly early on we started thinking about viridian as um, sort of a work in progress and the syndicate stage which we're at now as a uh, first stage towards something more significant and slightly significantly different structure later on which probably is going to be something along the, the lines of a fund a proper fund 
So there is a sort of a story emerging here. It's not, okay, we've set up a syndicate, that's it, that's what we're going to do, and that's the end all be all um, end state of, of Radian. There's, there's a progression happening. Just to clarify, I'm going to go back to my clarifying words here. <laughs> Syndication, what, what you mean there is a group of investors coming together under a legal framework. Is that, is that what, is that a fair well, or is it, what you uh, Not exactly. Let me walk you through it for a second just to explain how this works. So Viridian is a limited liability partnership registered in the UK, as my one indicated, and uh, it is FCA authorized. And the, the license we have allows us to introduce investment opportunities to our members. Now, our members have to, not everyone can join us. I mean, it's not a question of cost or anything like that. They have to uh, meet certain criteria, again, mandated by the FCA. They have to be either high net worth in, individuals or uh, professional or certified investors. And uh, that comes down to their prior experience in investing in unlisted companies because they these tend to be high risk. So the FCA tends to be quite careful in who they allow to participate in stuff like that. So to join us, one must qualify as either of these two. And there's a certain uh, small test, literally test that they have to take and then pass, hopefully. Um, and once they become members, we uh, we screen and um, select certain investment opportunities that we feel uh, are good ones. And it's important to emphasize that Mawan and I invest in each and every one of these opportunities. So, you know, we're not, some people operate this model as brokers. Basically, they say, here's something that's interesting. You may want to invest in that or not, up to you. But our perspective is different. Uh, I think it would be fair to uh, characterize Viridian as more of a co-investment platform than anything else. So, you know, Mawan and I uh, due diligence everything ourselves. And the, the first question we have to answer is, are we comfortable investing our own money into it? And only if both of us commit to investing our own private funds into it, do we then turn around and introduce this to the rest of the, the network. Now, syndication is basically that, which is us introducing an investment opportunity to everyone and then deciding on a case-by-case -case basis individually whether or not they want to participate. And this is where a syndicate is very different from a fund. A fund, you sign up to a fund, you put some money into the fund, and from that moment on, the fund manager has absolute discretion on what to do with that money, and you as the investor are sort of passive uh, in it for the ride, as it were. Uh, a syndicate is, is very different in that every single opportunity, every single investor has a decision to make on whether or not they want to join. And in practice, we've never had a single opportunity where everyone decided to invest. We've never had a single opportunity where no one decided to invest. It always ranges between you know, roughly 25% to 75%, depending on how excited people get. Okay. So just to clarify as well then so as you said in a fund it would be they'd be passive investing basically but invested into the fund and looking to just get a, a return based on the trust in the fund manager and presumably a team of people who are doing assessment and things uh, analysis they're you're you're putting your money into their trust uh, their their hands to say i trust you with this and you're going to give me a return and then the basis of the agreement is probably some sort of target return i would i would imagine right in, in if you're a, yes. a, an investor you can't i'm assuming you it, can't guarantee returns or no maybe you can. no there are no guarantees it's, it's slightly more complicated than that because the returns get calculated uh, uh it's there's a slightly more complicated financial 
mechanism in place to basically uh, how to allocate the returns of, of different investment uh, or the, the investments generate in a fund. But without going into too much detail on that, because it's, it's really not very material, uh, you're absolutely right in that investors in a fund, once they sign up and they commit to a fund, they, they pass their money to that fund, or even if they don't, uh, sometimes it just is called on an as-needed basis. However, they're legally obligated to do so. And barring very, very, uh, let's say, extreme circumstances, they cannot say, actually, you know what, we've changed our mind, we don't like it anymore, we'd rather not do it. They are legally committed to fund whenever the, it's called a drawdown. So when the fund manager announces a drawdown, they have to pass the money. Right, right, right. Okay. And so and can you just then clarify venture capitalist versus angel investor versus private equity? I mean, private equity, I think you did a really good job explaining, but then venture capitalists and angel investors where the differences are there and, and also then where you sit in that framework as well as Viridian Ventures. Um, so it's not so much that there's a difference between angel investing and venture capital. Angel investing is one form of venture, cap venture capital. There's uh, right. okay. venture capital is in, in effect early stage investing. I mean, to, to sort of generalize here, um, early stage or investments into early stage ventures, as in uh, private companies unlisted in relatively early stage of their development, as in, you know, uh, right around formation or slightly after formation, sometimes they're pre-revenue, sometimes they're already revenue generating, but they're not established um, operating trading businesses. And they're certainly not traded on any exchange because that, that then becomes a completely different story. So very roughly PE versus VC as in private equity versus venture capital is more a matter of stage rather than a matter of, of, of type and PE is later stage and VC is, is earlier stage. Now within VC, you have different types of actors, uh, summer funds, and then, you know, VCs as the, the sort of uh, common uh, terminology goes is basically a short way of saying venture capital funds. They're generally structured as funds. Uh, angel investors are just individuals who um, do the same thing that VC funds do, but at usually, usually a much smaller scale because they're individuals rather than aggregated group of investors. Uh, and I would say quite often also at earlier stages, um, because as, if you think about it, as, the, as a company progresses, it becomes bigger, it requires more money it raises larger rounds. And so generally, and again, this is a generalization, so you know, take it with a significantly sized pinch of salt, but generally earlier stages, earlier stage rounds are smaller and more amenable to individual investments, whereas later stage rounds are larger and therefore typically more the territory of VC funds. Right, okay. And, and, that, and just, Again, on my understanding, as as it scales, like if you're an early early stage investor, you'd be looking for a better return because it's a higher risk profile at that stage, especially pre-revenue and things. If a company's an idea that's even if it's a really cool idea, there's a lot of risk involved in like, is this going to be able to get to market? Is this going to be able to actually sell? Is there is there really a market for this or, you know, based on what the market research is saying, is it is that legitimate? Uh, all of those questions. So therefore, the risk profile is much bigger. And therefore, if you invest at that stage, you'd be looking to get a better return than perhaps something that's very established and, and uh, has already generated revenue is, you know, looking already towards IPO, like to, towards 
listing itself at some point or getting an exit at some point in the not too distant future, then your return is likely to be less. Is that all correct? Generally, yes. In principle, yes. <laughs> yes. In principle. Okay, cool. Okay, there are well, always exceptions to the rule, but, but yeah, yeah, I mean, fi financial yeah. theory still operates like that, yes. Yeah. Okay, good, I mean, good. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad we clarified that. I feel like I understand that bit quite well, but uh, or at least the so basics of that. I think it's a normal run of things, Nick. The more risk you take on, the more returns it you should expect. And that's exactly how the market operates. Okay, cool. So what I want to do now is talk about then the types of the types of way in which you guys make decisions on businesses to invest in or to support or to, to go for. Because I, what I would imagine is because it, it's very interesting to me in terms of my kind of wind building idea, concept, whatever this, you know, you've you, you've built a business which in itself is difficult. Right. So you've built a business and got together 50 angel, angel investors to collaborate and de decide on things. And I'm sure there's a lot of admin and, and pain in that to, towards like, you know, even uh, even the financial services authorities and things and you know that getting that certification all of the compliance that you have to run through i'm sure there's a lot of headaches involved in that dan being an ex-lawyer probably loves those sort of things but like <laughs> there's probably a lot of there's a lot of pain involved in in some of it uh so that in itself no, I, I hate it but i have to do it anyway yeah so but there's a lot of a lot of stuff going on there in terms of running a business and that in itself is is very admirable that you guys have achieved to do that and get and get where you are now but then also i think it's interesting to see the the each individual company that is being formed that's pitching you guys that's trying to get investment is is on a road towards something hopefully great like i want to i want to understand from you guys what are the key things you're looking at like what are the main drivers i've got some ideas in my head but i want to hear it from you guys like what are the sorts of things when you see um i forget uh, a, a brochure or whatever however it gets presented on the first day pitch and deck then, uh, pitch deck uh, uh, what a pitch deck okay yeah okay of course of course it is <laughs> so much consultancy here, pitch deck yeah so when you see a pitch deck meaning like basically a set of slides uh for those that don't know what a pitch deck is with their pitch on it for for their business what are the first things you're looking at? What are the key things that you think? I mean, have you got a philosophy around that that you guys stick to, like that you, you've kind of agreed upon as a basic framework to say, here's our top three concerns when we're looking at a pitch deck. Like what are the you know top three, top five things we need to have and need to see and need to kind of believe in to even consider this? Um, so I don't think... Any pitch deck is exactly the same as the other, but there are things that we, based on our experience, look out for. And uh, I think the first thing that that uh, you think about is, does this idea make sense? Hmm. And if the idea makes, sen makes sense, is there a market for it? And those are just the very, very basic two questions that you ask. If the idea makes sense and there could be a market for it, I think that's where you start looking into the real things of whether it can be successful or not. And the big part of that is the team. Is the team a good team? Um, do they have the right experience? Do they have the right attitude? Um, the other thing that we look for is a bit of discipline around their projections and how they've been running the company so far. 
So how well have they kept an eye on uh, not just growth, but also their costs? And how well do they project they're going to do based on uh, the additional funding that they're raising? I think in broad brushes, those are the things that we look for. Okay. So in terms of... In I terms would of add a few to these. Yeah, yeah, go for it, please. If please. I could. Um, and I think it's an excellent question because um, at, on one level, uh, having done this with my own over the last four plus years, I know that we we look for the same things. We don't always agree on whether or not these things actually exist in a business. And we've had some very interesting discussions over the years on you know, where we were asking the same question, but sort of disagreed on the answer. But the question was still the same. But I think trying to articulate it is uh, is a very very useful exercise, and I think we've we've had to do that a couple of times in the past. So to the list that my one just went through, which I completely agree with, I'd add a, a couple more things. One is, even if there's a good team and there's a good market and the idea makes sense, is it defensible? If if somebody can come along very easily and copy it, and so you know that makes it very very risky and probably a good reason not to invest in it. Is it scalable? As in, you know, fine, it could be a great market, a great idea, but can it grow to significant sizes relatively quickly? Because remember, our investors and us, the the time horizon we have in mind is, you know, five to six years. It's not 20 years. You, you know, it's not, let's wait around for a couple of decades and see for the, if this thing goes somewhere. So it, it has to achieve scale relatively quickly. Um, is it profitable? I mean, in unit economics is there, are there good margins embedded in, into into the, the business model? Because otherwise, it can grow for into a very large size, but still, you know, the outcome is going to be not super sexy. And the, the final thing is also: uh, is it an exitable business? Um, some businesses can be great businesses, but you're you're looking at them and you're asking, okay, how is this going to exit? And you know, people always say the same things, but trade sale, right? Who's going to buy this? Is there is there an obvious buyer? Not specifically a, a company, but the type of company. In some cases, it's very obvious that you know the uh, type of a certain type of company, and there are several of those out there in the world, would be interested in buying something like that once it hits scale. And in other cases, you look at it and say, okay, this is very niche. I don't have a picture of a buyer in my head, so that that's another risk. So I think that these are also elements that uh, we bring into our evaluation. Mm -hmm. And so when you, when you're let's take it right from the beginning, like does it make sense? Like I'm guessing you like Marwan explained about the angel um, uh, meetups that he went to. I, I don't know what they were actually called, but the meetings only went to see people pitch events. Their, Pitch events. There you go. <laughs> I knew there'd be a term for it. And it's a really obvious term. Pitch events. When you went to these pitch events, like I'm sure there's probably some quite exciting ideas, concepts, things that you see. You're like, whoa, I had never thought of that. Like, but when you're assessing, does it make sense? What, what then? Let's dig a bit deeper on that. Like, what do you mean by does it make sense? Like, is it something you can literally visualize yourself? Is it something that you can believe can happen or is it something different let me jump in there on that for a second because i think there are two two ways of looking at this and you i think sort of touched on both of them the way you asked the question and they're different and that difference is important 
one common pitfall that you have when you're evaluating investments is to uh, view it as a potential client or a user. And one thing that we often have to remind ourselves is that we are not necessarily the target audience for, for something. And especially when you're talking about things that appeal to, you know, younger people or different geographies or, you know, sectors that we have nothing to do with. The fact that it doesn't appeal to me doesn't necessarily say that it doesn't appeal to a pretty large market out there. So, you know, you are not the client is a phrase that you know, comes comes up a lot in our discussions. Mm-hmm. The other side of it, and at least, you know, the way I look at it, um, I think Warren Buffett famously said uh, at some point that he doesn't invest in stuff he doesn't understand. I think that resonates with me. Um, there, there could be, so for example, one thing that we don't invest in as a rule is stuff that is too complicated for us to understand. We don't do biomed, for example. We don't do deep science, not because it's a bad idea. It could be an amazing idea. It's just we have no ability to assess whether or not this is likely to work because neither of us understands enough about the subject matter to have what we would even initially qualify as a, as a, you know, an informed opinion. And if that's mm. the case, then you know, just leave it, move on. Mm. Um, let me try to articulate that in a different way. Uh, I think a lot of, 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 does it make sense is, is there demand for whatever the company is producing? And it could be anything, it could be a physical product, it could be a platform. Is there going to be demand for it? And if there is demand, then is there a way to monetize it? Because there are a lot of great things that we see, but sometimes you see a great idea and I say, and you'll say, oh, that's interesting. I may want to use that, but will you be willing to pay for it? That's a different question. Mm-hmm. And I think the second bit that Dan explained, which is the stuff that we don't uh, invest in, I think the key question for us is, can we ask intelligent questions from these founders that helps them clarify what the business is about? And if we can't, then we just don't understand that sector well enough. Mm. I like that. That's actually kind of leads me into my next question as well. I was sort of, I was trying to work out when you're talking to these people who are setting or who are pitching, right? Also, to what extent are they expecting investors to be involved in uh, like some in some way affecting their business because obviously when you watch something like um i forget what it's called it's just gone from my head dragon's den or the shark tank in america you know those those investment programs where you see a bunch of people sitting on a seat with a wad of cash in front of them <laughs> and then you watch people sweating in front of them trying to get money but obviously those people are in like they're looking to get something from the investors beyond just the money because it's usually like, a, you know, they're in a sector or something, they give them access. How does that play out in your world of investment? Like to what extent are pitchers, people pitching their company expecting to have influence or involvement from investors? Because I'd imagine sometimes it would just be much better for them just to get the money. <laughs> like and get on with what they're doing. Uh, if they, if, especially if they're experts in their field. And some investors probably don't want to be too involved because they want to get on with their lives. But where is that balance and how do you guys manage so, that balance? I think actually it's the opposite way that you've described it, Nick. Uh, more, the smartest uh, founders, they they don't want just the money. They want uh, 
the experience of people who have seen lots of different companies they can give good advice around the pitfalls that any business can fall into and i think most of the uh, best founders they look beyond just the money and want help as well and i think it's if if there's any red flag for us it would be a founder who would say we just need the money yeah I think in the in, in in the best. Sorry, go ahead. What what then? Because I, that's what I'd imagined, and certainly like big brains sitting there with cash in front of them. There's a reason they've also got cash in front of them usually too. So that I I, I would imagine as a, if I was setting up a company, I definitely want to pull on that that knowledge and that expertise. But I guess then it plays to the question of like how much involvement are investors willing to put into uh the 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 company's progression because yeah you don't also at the same time you don't want to just have to be a a consultant for you know on a full-time basis for every startup i'm assuming (laughs) yeah well um i think the best answer i can give you in classic insight tradition is it depends uh because it does depend uh quite a bit um on at least two things one is what the perspective of the founders is and i don't think there is um there necessarily any correlation between intelligence and and wanting to have more than just money but also advice i think part of it is also to what extent uh, founders feel that they are uh, sort of very very familiar and very knowledgeable about the subject matter in which they operate and to what extent they feel that we are knowledgeable about the subject matter in which they operate because it could be quite esoteric businesses where we given our backgrounds don't have a lot of you know relevant experience to to bring to the table and i think it would be very fair for them to you know look at our cvs and say okay guys you know you're competent experienced probably pretty smart people but you know none of what you've done in your life so far is really relevant to what i'm doing because i'm operating in the whatever i don't know agriculture space and you don't know anything about agriculture so you know what what value are you uh but i think the other side of that and it's, it's a very good question that you've asked is to what extent are we both willing but more able or capable of supporting businesses uh on an ongoing basis because sometimes it gets into quite a bit of heavy lifting and just to be clear right i mean in some deals that we do we end up uh, either as board members or board board observers in companies that we invest in it really depends on the amount of money we invest in the composition of the round and so on but even if that is not the case we're always there to provide advice if uh, our portfolio companies want and value that advice but sometimes that becomes quite uh, an intensive demanding hands-on relationship which does take up quite a lot of bandwidth and you know both my one and myself can give you quite a few examples especially also recent examples where this has become a bit of a rabbit hole that we are sometimes finding it difficult to extract ourselves from and definitely not what we bargained for and it's just you know it's part of the game i guess yeah so um i would like to clarify a couple of things here though um in many cases you don't have to be a subject matter expert in the company's business to be able to help them and what that means are 
is there are lots of ways we can help companies. And just to give you examples of some of the, uh, the ways that we've helped them, we've helped them recruit people through our network. We've helped uh, clean up their financials. Uh, we've helped them decide on strategy and uh, prepare the company for a next uh, or a future fundraise. And these are areas where we don't have to have subject matter expertise in the core business, but we do have the expertise around how the environment works and the mm -hmm. network to help support them. So uh, there's no requirement for us to be more knowledgeable than the founders themselves about the area that we are investing in. Yeah. If anything, well, we expect the founders to have more knowledge than us. That's again another red flag if we know more about the sector than the founder themselves. Yeah, I would say that was a big red flag. Then why aren't you doing it yourselves if it's such a great idea, right? <laughs> or or hiring people to do it for you. No, I I I, I hear you there. So I think that's definitely and and those things um I I I think going back to the sort of the core the core fundamentals of business there's so many bits that people sort of neglect or or miss or misunderstand especially if especially if they're for example you know if they're a really competent technical guru in a specific realm and they know this specific realm inside out back to front and they're just experts in it and they've got this great idea for developing some technical thing that that is a solution that everyone will need and everyone will want and it's going to be great but then that that technical expertise does not lead into understanding how does a business actually get formed how do you sell your product how do you market your product how are you going to get T talent to scale this product like to get enough engineers in to build the things out that you need to build what's the next steps on your product range you know how is your product going to develop onwards into the future all these things and i think i mean I, i've certainly seen myself in, in my work experience along the way you know there's there's people who become who, who come in and they're very very competent in a specific field but they don't necessarily understand the fundamentals of the business and how how to drive how the business is going to be able to drive itself forward uh, even if you've got the best idea in the world you know even if you've got a really amazing individual yeah. person but that individual person can't carry the company to scale necessarily yep. so I think and i think you've described it well nick as in we expect founders to know something very very well but we don't expect them to know everything very well mm -hmm. and that's I think one of the key metrics that we look at is how good is this founder at building a team around himself where the team members complement each other and they get uh, and they bring in uh, different skills that are required to build a business rather than build uh, just a product. Hmm. Related to that, I think there's another uh, couple of questions that are uh, very important when we evaluate uh, business. One is we found over the years that, and again, it's a generalization, but single founder businesses tend to do less well with us and in general than multiple founder businesses. And I think part of that is because if, if it's a team, two, three, doesn't matter how many, there is a, a, a built-in inherent mechanism for discussion, sharing, you know, uh, thinking about things together, getting to consensus which doesn't exist when it's one person running the show and you know they they just call the shots right mm -hmm. so 
by the way, I think there's a lot of research substantiating that from you know uh, larger data sets in, uh, in the VC industry on the, the West Coast, at least that I that I've seen. Another thing which is a lot harder to quantify, but to me is is a critical element in uh, evaluating a potential investment and then specifically a team is do they listen? Do they know how to listen? Because to my one's point, yes, there's a lot of things that founders shouldn't know or are not expect we don't expect them to know. And it's fine. But we do not just expect them, we need them to be able, and we don't expect them to even recognize that they don't know that or that these things are important. Some of the things you mentioned, like, like how to build a business, how to set it up for success, how to build the infrastructure, the processes, and so on. I mean, especially if they're first-time founders, they wouldn't know that, and we don't expect them to. Mm-hmm. We do expect them, and more than that, we require them to be open to input and advice and listening and not just be sort of single-minded because otherwise you end up with a team that is incapable of, of winning because they don't know everything that's required to win, but they're not listening and you can't force them to. So unless they have the ability to listen, it's a very, very risky situation. I think it's it, something that struck me while you were saying that. I think, I mean, I've, I've got a thing I mention all the time, so it's probably going to be boring for anyone who's listened to other podcasts of mine, but uh, trust. Trust is such a key element in every single relationship we have in our lives, like no matter where, what type of relationship it is, whether it's a lover, a wife, a husband, or a child, or a friend, or just like someone you're conducting business with, trust is is absolutely innate in everything that, that runs towards successful relationships. And it's very difficult to develop trust usually, especially if it's something that really matters or something you really care about like or someone you really care about. It's very difficult to develop the trust. And it's very easy to break the trust, as we've all experienced, I'm sure, in various points in life. But it, it, it sort of strikes me that actually what you guys have done is set up a business that is like around built like managing trust and relationships between various different people and developing those trusting relationships. So your trust within your investor, your angel group that you have that you've you know got got together, and the, the, of course you've got a framework that they have to pass tests and things. But there's also then trusting. They're they're they're, they're going to be a part of your group to because they trust the group and what it what it is stated to do and and how it is built as a framework and then they trust that you guys are going to be hopefully you know generating enough interesting portfolios to put in front of them and things likewise the people who are going to be pitching with you i mean uh, you you kind of alluded to it but the the they're going to have to trust you that you can also deliver for them not just the money but also the expertise or whatever it is that they need to help them make their company successful it's pointless for them to take investment if the investment comes with no nothing useful to it you know if it's not enough money or if it's not enough uh, expertise or a balance of the both so it strikes me you guys are kind of uh, masters of trust <laughs> in, in the way that you work i mean how, how do you feel about what i say there is a big compliment i suppose but it's also something that i see with you guys what i know of you you're very smart guys, but you're also very nice, kind people. I think there's a, like, you probably are talented within building those trusting relationships. And therefore, that's probably where your strengths, you know, beyond your kind of lawyer, technical, you know, management consultancy, banking backgrounds have led you to into this realm. It, I, I would say your personalities and your ability to build those trusting relationships is probably a key component. 
but ha yeah, you can maybe speak for each other so you don't have to blow your own trumpet. <laughs> um, then you want? Do you want to go first? <clears throat> or I can go if you want. Yeah, sure. Uh, no, it's fine. Um, I, I, I agree with what you've said, um, but um, there are a couple of caveats that we need to throw in there. And I think there's a third aspect that you haven't mentioned, which to me is the key aspect. With our investors, yes, they do trust us, but bear in mind, they don't follow us blindly. It's not a fund, so they you know, trust but verify. They, they definitely need to trust us enough to uh, pay attention to what we send them and look at it and, and take it seriously, and I think they do. And uh, many of our, by now less and less so, but definitely all of our initial investors and still many of our investors to date are people that either my one or myself know personally, and that's how they became our members. So there's, there's a relationship. Uh, similarly, with uh, with startups, of course, they they do need to trust us to you know um, make sense. But at the end of the day, in most cases, we're not in a position to enforce our opinions or our views. We're in a position to pro uh, provide them as advice, and they are of course free to take them or not. And uh, so that puts them at a much sort of more autonomous uh, place. I think the the third element, which to me is really critical, is the trust between us. Mm as in my one and myself. Um, I mentioned earlier that, you know, we, we don't always agree on, on things when we evaluate a company and sometimes we have uh, opposite views and sometimes, you know, I like a company and my one doesn't like it and, or the other way around. And, and I mean, we're different people, we're different characters, we're different backgrounds and so on. So we have uh, sometimes quite different uh, points of view. But one thing that I, and I was thinking about this this morning, uh, you know, sort of thinking ahead to, to this discussion based on the brief that you sent. And I think the, the one thing that really came out to me as the key element or the core element of why this is successful is that level of trust that I think we have managed to build between us, where I know that even if I don't agree with something my one says, and even if it pisses me off, and sometimes it does, I know that there's there's good and valid reason to listen. Because my history with him is such that he's proven to me sufficient times that he sees things that I don't, that it's worth paying attention what, to what he says, because, you know, he's pardon my French, but he's called bullshit on quite a few of my opinions over the last years, and sometimes very deservedly so. And uh, we, we recently had a company, uh, you know, uh, get into serious, a serious pot of trouble, which is a company that before we started very and I invested in and he didn't. Mm. And I recall that conversation, this was like five years ago or so. And he was right. And I shouldn't have invested. And the, the reasons why that company got into trouble is exactly because what he mm. said. And I believe that there are also examples to the opposite, but that's the thing, right? This, over, over the years, we've built a relationship where even if we don't agree with each other, we trust each other and respect each other and value each other enough to listen. And I think that's really a key component of, of a team working well together. Mm. So let me give my view on this and uh, I think similarly to Dan I'm going to break it down into the different uh, entities our investors us working together and the startups um, I'm not going to add anything to the relationship with the our investors because I think Dan covered it really well I, I don't think I've got anything substantial to add in there with regards to startups it's uh, 
in many cases you start from zero because it's the first time you see that group of people and in the early phases the what what it's very difficult to 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 build trust what you want to see is a bit of track record how they've managed things and that gives you an idea of how competent these folks are at running a business um, in terms of trusting that they're going to make the right decisions there is some history around how they run their business but it's also part of the conversation because what you want to also uh, understand is how do these people think what what are what were the key drivers for their decision and how they're going to decide if things run well and how they're going to decide if these things don't run well and those are the key things that you try to uh, to assess um, now in many cases you that just grows as you interact with the company more and more but given that these are early stage companies and we have a limited time to make decisions there's only a, a limit to how much trust you can build in that short period of time you mm. I think a lot of trust comes from uh, working together and understanding how each person thinks and how they work. And as with regards to us at Viridian, I think the reason that there is a strong level of trust is because uh, I think one of the things that Dan mentioned was we think differently, but we always have good reasons. And in many cases, we try to articulate that. Now, that articulation of why we think one way or another doesn't necessarily lead to us getting consensus, uh, but it always brings a new perspective that we may have not thought about uh, individually. And mm -hmm. with regards to running the business, I think now that we've been running it for several years, we've both identified what are the things that we are good at and what are the things that we are less good at. and. In many cases, we had to become good at something because we had to distribute tasks at the very beginning. Uh, somebody got one task maybe coincidentally because they've had that initial contact with, uh, I don't know, an accountant or, or uh, uh, a dev company. And uh, uh, we just had to grow into those roles and become good at them. And I think over time, we've also identified very well what we are not good at. And I, I recall in many cases uh, when we have a new engagement or a new discussion with a new entity, I always think, hmm, Dan would do a much better job at this than I could. And I think that's understanding and history built together. I think that's what leads, leads to trust. Yeah. Well, I think <clears throat> you, you guys have a respect for one another and a respect for your talents which is what you're kind of what you're describing as well and, and like you said working together it, it, over time builds trust it's, it's ironic in a way that dan was mentioning about you know um single founder companies versus uh, two multiple founder companies because in a way you guys are an example of that right you you have the ability to bounce off each other to tr to test one another and you have the respect and 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 um what would be the right word? I guess emotional intelligence or whatever to to trust that 
you could be wrong. Like to, to, to be able to challenge yourself and, 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 and accept that you might be wrong on something or accept the challenge to your, 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 uh, your beliefs uh, in, in specific situations. And I think that is, I mean, that's something I saw a lot at INSEAD actually. And I don't know if you agree, but I felt like a lot of people were very open-minded because they had a very broad sense of the world and a lot of, a lot of different experience, a lot of different opinions coming in from different industries and different backgrounds and things. So we saw a lot of things where people just very open to ideas, open to potentially being wrong. Not everyone. There are exceptions. I'm sure we're all thinking of one right now, but <laughs> a lot of people very open-minded. <laughs> Shout out to no one at all. Uh, we love you, man. <laughs> but, uh, but, but, but I think that's something which I see as a, a superpower as well, is that open-mindedness and that ability to kind of challenge yourself. And I, 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 I feel personally, like as I get older, I learn more about what I don't know and I become and I'm so much more hungry for knowledge and things because I'm learning so much more than I did when I was younger because I feel like I'm becoming more and more open to like being wrong which is kind of ironic because I wish I'd had that when I was you know 20 and then like grown up with that but I guess over time you learn more and more about the world and I always I always laugh because I think about my parents' generation and like they're looking at us coming to these revelations when we're in our forties or whatever, and they're laughing, going, "Yeah, oh cool, I remember that. I remember that time. Yeah, you've still got all this time to come." <laughs> you know. <laughs> so uh, no, but I think you guys, I, I'm still going to stick with it. That trusting thing. Okay, of course, there's different levels of trust, and when you're dealing with a startup and it's a new set of people, and it's, it's that's a very like basic trust you're building there. But it's still trust, and it's still you're still looking to build that trusting relationship, and and the more you can build it, then the more you can develop and and grow and help those people, and hopefully they can help you in in returns or in in you know building their business and things. So. Uh, it's it's very interesting there. Before we wrap up, I wanted to touch on one more sort of theme, subject matter. I apologize if you can all hear kids. my kids in the background screaming and shouting. I think uh, mm -hmm. they've, all arrived. they've all arrived home now. <laughs> but uh, yeah, one thing I wanted to touch upon was more the any philosophies you have around specific types of investment or specific themes or like you said about doing something good for the world like you, you mentioned that right at the beginning Maren, and i think that's something uh i'm interested to know kind of is there a way in which you guys try to align yourselves on the on any specific themes or topics uh, uh in terms of your investment um, choices so it varies and um uh... I think Dan has touched upon this a little bit earlier, but um, there are things that we, when we started Radian, we agreed we're never going to invest in. Uh, so things like alcohol, firearms, tobacco, and gambling. It's a matter of policy. We just don't want to invest in those things. Now, what drives our investing is, uh, mm -hmm. what Dan mentioned is things we understand, but also things we think has have the greatest potential. And what we gravitate towards are mostly technology companies because those have the greatest potential in, in quick growth, but it's also where they can have the greatest impact as well. Now, impact doesn't necessarily have to be uh, green uh, or or uh, uh, we don't we not we not impact investors per se. But when I say impact, it's it's an an effect on how we do things or how or change the way that uh, we uh, uh, we buy things or 
or how different companies do things if it's a B2B company. Um, now, one thing I would point out is there's no conflict be between uh, trying to get good returns and also make a difference to society, but we don't restrict ourselves to that. We, we tend to gravitate towards good tech companies. I'm, I don't, I don't think I explained it very well. So then, uh, I'm sure you're going to be able to do a better job of this. <laughs> well, um, if only by virtue of the fact that this is, I mean, you know, I, I ran an impact fund for six years and this is a classic discussion of, you know, returns versus impact. And so the way we always thought about it, uh, back in the fund where I was working is imagine that there are two, uh, two circles, like a Venn diagram, right? One circle is all of the opportunities that satisfy a certain uh, impact policy, as in social go governance, environmental, and so on. And the other is all of the investment opportunities out there that satisfy certain financial requirements, returns, basically, right? And so as an investor, you're faced with a choice. Do I invest only in stuff that meets the first set of criteria as it impact regardless of financial, or do I invest in anything that satisfies financial requirements regardless of impact, or do I find the overlap? Because there is an overlap. And now the, uh, we had that discussion very early on when we set up Radian and you know, coming from an impact investment background, um, I was um, suggesting uh, and sort of trying to, uh, do, back then we were three, uh, John was still part of the, of the business. I was suggesting and trying to convince Mawan and John to adopt a more restrictive policy where we would apply impact criteria in addition to financial criteria. And their position, which I think was very justified in hindsight, is that that would restrict our universal opportunities very severely. And they're right. Um, I think my bias was, you know, coming at it from doing this kind of work in Africa, where there's a lot more of an overlap between financial returns and, and, and impact, because there's a lot more opportunities that satisfy both. But in a, in a relatively advanced and sophisticated market like the UK, that becomes a very, very small mm. subset. And then you sort of largely take yourself out of the market. So we went with, you know, the requirement is financial. However, I would say that in both our cases, if an opportunity we look at beyond meeting our financial requirements also has very clear societal value, that always is a very strong plus. So you'd always opt to pursue things like yeah. that uh, versus things that, you know, are just money. Yeah. Well, I can imagine. So you, you have a, a an ethics framework with which you work from anyway. And uh, you've stated, you know, tobacco, firearms, etc. Like you, you have a, a framework with with which you don't go outside of that. But then, knowing you as I do, I, I would, you know, you probably looking to try to just be good humans, right? We're all, mm -hmm. I think, we're all trying to be good humans around. Like, there's that's not taken into account a lot of the time in life nowadays. Everyone's looking to fight one another, but reality is, we're most of us are trying to be good humans and trying to do something worthwhile. So, if if we if you get presented opportunities to do something worthwhile and something mm -hmm. that makes uh, you know positive impact on society, or, or then then you 
that that plays into it. But obviously, I guess as you uh, going back to one of the first words you said, professionalize it. You know, professionalize what you're doing. Well, in that context, professionalizing it means you can't just be, you know. Uh, focused on one specific thing you, you, you for yourselves to be able to scale you have to be open to lots of different opportunities and and I guess as long as it sits within your ethical framework which you know it can be anything then like it, it, it not, ev not everything needs to be uh, yeah uh, I mean uh, to try to money. put it in a simple <laughs> way um, <laughs> we don't invest in You're things right. that would make us bad people and if there are things we invest in that make us good people, that's an additional no. bonus. But we also invest in things that make us neutral people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or just uh, make good business. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and remember, we have to, we have a commitment to a fairly large and quite diverse group of people. 50 members, different geographies, different backgrounds, different life stages, different preferences, and so on. We, the value proposition we put in front of them when we approached them and invited them to join Viridian was not let's invest in stuff that delivers financial returns and does good for planet, society. Mm -hmm. So it was just, you know, we'll deliver to you what we believe are good investment opportunities that satisfy a relatively high financial threshold and that is yeah. that yeah. so in a way we don't really have the mandate to add further constraints to that because that's not our promise to yeah. our investors that's not how you've built yourselves right oops sorry i'll just tap the microphone it's not how you've built yourselves as a as a business so why you, you then be yeah <laughs> trying to reframe your business so guys listen i think that's a, a really nice place to sort of wrap up but what i want to do is give you an opportunity to kind of well promote anything you want to promote but also to just give any advice to anyone looking to start out either investing themselves or or to start like to chasing a pathway if they're let's say we're talking to a younger person who's looking for a, a career in towards finance investment things like that like any any advice you would give out there to the world that you can that you would like to to say um so for somebody wanting to invest the for the first time uh, i think the the best advice is to take their time for their first investment uh, these are the area where we operate in is the riskiest part of the market which is the startups and uh, before they jump in, and I know how exciting it can be the first time they go to a pitch event, take their time, learn from, talk to other investors, talk to other startup founders, build their knowledge about the environment and about how, how other investors uh, do their investing decisions before they make their firm's investment. And a good way of doing that is by joining a syndicate. So uh, that's not a plug for ourselves, but uh, joining any any syndicate uh, or collaborating the, the way that we started, especially if they can find a more experienced angel they can work with. Hmm. Should be a plug for joining us. To that, I would add two things, I think. One is diversification so yeah i completely agree with no one but uh, on top of that 
you really need to put sort of little bets in many places rather than you know get really excited by something and put a lot of money into it and you know if it works it works if it doesn't work you are in a problem and related to that patience um because and and realism i mean the the truth of the matter is and i don't think enough people are aware of it and even if they are i don't think they really internalize it is that most early stage investments you make are going to fail and that's relatively easy to understand as a sort of intellectual cerebral level but living through that is much harder which is you know it, roughly it's you know last statistics i've seen is seven out of ten so seven out of ten of your investments are going to end up wiping out as in not doing okay ish or just literally losing everything and that's fine that's 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 the industry average you know another two are going to be okay and the tenth is going to be the star right now it, it takes a long time for the star to be a star but it takes a lot, lot shorter time for the ones that crap out to crap out and so the way it's built almost systemically is you get the bad news first and then people start panicking and and you know so it's important to set expectations correctly when you start doing something like that. You know, a lot of the things you're going to do are not going to go well. That's fine. It's par for the course. The point is keep at it, diversify. And over time, you know, at the end of the day, the machine works and the statistics prove themselves out. You just have to hang in there. If you start panicking, everything goes to hell. I love that. And, uh, and I think that's a great way to, great way to end there. Guys, thank you so much. I know you're very busy men with with families and and uh, and lots of lots of uh, things to get on with on a Saturday afternoon. So I super appreciate you taking the time with me to join me here on the podcast. And uh, yeah, and a shout out to any of our classmates that may have listened to towards the end here. Thank you so much for sticking with us. Uh, and uh, and for those of you who aren't our classmates or ha have stuck this far, thank you as as well. So. Uh, Guys, take care. All the best with your business. I really hope that it, it, you know you, you guys find your next stage and, and keep growing. And I'll, I'll, I'll obviously keep watching and enjoying your success. Thank you for hosting us, Nick. It's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much again. Okay, thanks for listening. For those still here, uh, if you're still here, please do review it. Uh, it would be really useful to me. Um, I, I, I haven't really pushed too hard with these podcasts. Uh, it's been a personal project so far, but I figure why not ask? Um, yeah, if, you, if you've got a chance to review or rate on, uh, on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're using, that would be super useful. Thank you so much, and I'll see you in the next episode.